With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyze Nanfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red Channel. I'm Josh Williams, and for the third time in a row, I am joined by Andrew Beasley. And Bees, we have a a serious win to talk about this week. Yeah, it was good, wasn't it? I mean, it, we, it's just this strange season continuing, really, where Liverpool either seem to score six or seven or nine goals, or they really struggle in games. And, and thankfully, this was one of the the former, like it, I saw a stat, it's crazy. They've scored six goals four times for the first time since 1964. And yet you could say they're probably having one of their worst seasons. I mean, not in that entire period, but for but for quite some time. So um, I think, they, you know, they're lucky they're playing a pretty poor lead side who, who sort of seemed to give up in the second half a little bit. But fair play. I mean, hopefully, you know, Liverpool could take some confidence from that. We've seen before they've they've had these big wins and haven't really kicked on, but it would be nice if they could finish the season with a bit of a flourish to uh, raise a bit of optimism ahead of, of next season. Yeah, well, we are going to get into it today. Um, apologies for being a day late in comparison to usual with the podcast. I am running running purely on paracetamol at the minute. Uh, it's, I'm not really that well, so I needed a bit of a break yesterday. But Liverpool's win has picked me up a little bit. Uh, hopefully, I'll be well enough to go to the match on the weekend. And hopefully, Liverpool can keep this... I don't know if you can call it a form yet, but hopefully Liverpool can keep this keep this up. But in terms of the Leeds game, mate, if we reverse it back before we kind of touch on some transfer rumours which have emerged in the past week or so regarding uh, Ryan Gravenberg. Um, obviously, in terms of the Leeds game, I don't know what you were expected going into the game, but I didn't think it would be as easy as it was. No, it was quite unexpected in, in quite a lot of ways. I mean, it's... One of those games, you look at the first sort of half an hour and from a Liverpool perspective, attacking-wise, nothing really happened. I'm not sure they had any chances of, of note before they scored. Leeds had one from a from a set piece, um, but Liverpool didn't create a lot. And it felt quite boring, to be honest. I mean, they were keeping the ball well, which is something they haven't done too much of, uh, particularly away from home this season. But neither were they creating anything. So you can look back now and say, oh, 6-1, amazing. But, you know, for half an hour, it felt like it was going to be a bit of a struggle to sort of break leads down. But um, obviously they did and from sort of kicked on from there. But, um, yeah, sort of sterile domination is the phrase, I think, for the first half hour or so. Yeah, well, I think I looked on Twitter, actually, after the first half an hour. I think that this is an important talking point, actually, from the game. Because for the first half an hour, obviously, as you say, we, we didn't create an awful lot, I think particularly our final third play and our final ball was, was miles off you. But when I was watch, when I was looking at Twitter, which again, I always say this, we should never do it during the game. It's just never a good idea. But when I was looking at Twitter, I was quite surprised by the, um, I don't know, criticism that Liverpool were, were getting. Because I, I, I think one thing I've been frustrated by 
all season really is how Liverpool have struggled to control games and struggled to establish themselves as the dominant side in games. And I think even though our final third play was miles of it early on, we definitely had like an element of control over over the middle of the park and the three two five system that we're currently playing with with possession did seem to have a bit of an influence on that. We were regaining the ball pretty quickly after losing it. Some of that you can put down to leads just being miles off it. But that sterile domination at the start, particularly as well, we need to throw in there. This was an away game. It's Ellen Road. It can get up and, and, and go against you if you let the game go a little bit more basketball. Um, so overall, that first half-hour period, I was a lot more kind of like, um, I don't know, satisfied, calm with that. I, I, I expected it to be a bit more ferocious, in terms of the ground, than it actually was. And I think that stemmed from us being really patient, controlling, almost a little bit Guardiola in the way we did things. Yeah, it's um, obviously it's hard to know what to expect from Liverpool this season, particularly away from home. I mean, it, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't negative. It just sort of felt like it didn't feel like a goal was coming. And then all of a sudden they, they'd scored two. I mean, obviously Leeds have their reputation as one of the more sort of... Um, high pressing teams always low ppda figures stuff like that and, and there didn't really seem too much of that like they were quite content to sort of sit in this block and liverpool were playing in front of them and it sort of felt to me like you know nothing was going to happen but then um obviously there was that the first goal obviously inevitably changed it and i think it's interesting so many um so many stats and things have come out about trent alexander arnold's performance and understandably so because he was really good and you know, a first player to get two assists and complete over 100 passes or, or one of very few players to do that, something like that. But it was actually one of his unsuccessful passes that led to the goal because he played it forward. It, you know, I think it was Furpo, someone intercepted it, but then it came back to Trent and, and the move unfolded from there. So it's funny how he had this really great passing performance and it's an unsuccessful pass that, that sets up the first goal sort of indirectly. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we can touch on Trent, I suppose. He was a player that I certainly picked up on uh, late in the game. I think he was... The, the, the amount of times he was getting on the ball was, was insane. Um, and it got to a point where I was like, this is, this has got to be record-breaking, this. Um, and when I checked, I think... In fact, I'll double-check now, just as I'm here. I think it was 153 t- touches that he accumulated. Yeah, um, right. 151, apparently, according to FB Ref. Um, I think who scored had it down as 153, though, unless I'm mistaken. But I think it was the most passes he's ever posted in a single game in a red shirt. It was, yeah. 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 Which sounds it sounds quite simplistic, but when you if you have a tactic, and again, there's lots of context missing here in terms of like leads just allowing this to happen, really. But yeah. if you have a tactic that does allow your best players to get on the ball the most. Trent's obviously touched the ball, I think, the most in Liverpool team. Yeah, ahead of Van Dijk. Mm-hmm. And last week, I wrote a piece on the fact that Salah touched the ball more than any other Premier League game this season. In this game, he touched the ball the second most in terms of Premier League games this season. So, it's getting Salah a lot more involved. It's getting Trent a lot more involved. In my opinion, they're Liverpool's two most valuable players in terms of possession. Mm-hmm. So, Aside from potentially Thiago, you can probably throw in there as well. Um, but I think any tactic that does that surely can't be a bad thing. No, definitely. I mean, we spoke last week and I was sort of sceptical saying, oh, you know, Trent's, uh, you know, 
best right back in the world or, or up there, certainly, you know, maybe they should leave him where he is. And you don't want to read too much into a game against a you know poor lead side, but I mean it certainly looks like this this tactical shape is uh, is coming together really nicely with how they're playing. And as you say, if it's getting Trent and Salah on the ball more, then then that can only be a good thing. You know, we said last week Salah had ten shots against um, Arsenal, which was the most he'd ever had. And I don't think he had that. You know, he didn't have that many this week, but he certainly uh, scored a couple of goals, uh, both on counter attacks as well. So, yeah, anything that, that gets them on the ball more has to be a good thing. And, I mean, not to get ahead of ourselves, but obviously Nottingham Forest at home this week. I mean, whatever happens, Liverpool are going to, uh, you would think, dominate the ball there. So you, you can probably expect similar sort of numbers from Trent and Salah uh, once again, I should think. Yeah, well, one, one interesting thing about Trent's performance, um, as a, a general, absolute vanilla statistic that I do use more often than I probably should on this podcast is just plain old passing accuracy. Because uh, I do think it offers an insight into which players are taking risks and things like that. And if you look at Trent's career in the Premier League since his debut, he averages about 73.3% pass completion. So he's losing the ball a fair, a fair bit, and that stems from the amount of things he's trying. In this game against Leeds, obviously it probably stemmed from Liverpool's domination and the fact he was able to get on the ball so often. But he posted his highest pass completion for the season by some distance. Uh, he completed 89.6% of his passes. His previous best for the season was 84%-ish. Um, and I think it's you still want Trent playing those killer passes. But I think this season in particular, and I think it might, I might have touched on this last week or the week before or something, I don't think Liverpool have the safety net this season to be able to sweep up Trent's um, killer balls that don't come off. And yeah. if if he's now going to occupy this inverted role, it's it's simply going to result in him probably keeping the ball more often and being a bit more calculated in when he does take them risks. Whereas I think... When he's deployed at this offensive playmaker and right back, I think he is inclined to like almost every time he's on the ball, it's his responsibility in his own head to 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 kill the game, to to do something to split the defence open. And in this role, I think he got the balance really, really right in terms of performance when it comes to keeping the ball, but also splitting open defences. Yeah, definitely. Because obviously, a game like that against Leeds, Liverpool with a lot of possession, obviously recycling it, um, you know, side to side, back and forth, and stuff like that. I mean, the simple fact is, is that if Trent's in the middle, it's going to come to him more often than it is if he's on one side. Just the very nature of the ball going sort of side to side. If it's in the middle, it goes from you and to you in both directions. And he just seemed to got that 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 really nice knack. Saw it for the last goal of just sort of like knowing when to go to sort of receive the ball, but then to move forward, not huge distance, but just find that angle and find that good position just from a sort of small dribble forward and then play that diagonal ball to to Nunes. I mean, they're not identical, but I mean, he's got three assists for Nunes now and they're all sort of broadly similar. Trent having the ball in a, in a kind of central area, yeah. slight sort of angle, diagonal um, on the path and Nunes does it from there. We saw it against Wolves in the, the cup game and then the game at Newcastle and then at, at Leeds, yeah. as we say. And obviously... You know, not that Trent can't deliver the ball to, to Nunes from the wing, but obviously it's that thing of just like getting the ball in a central area, just buying a little yard or two of space, and then he can play these balls and they're not travelling as far as if he's on the on the wing, just a slightly more sort of direct pass through to Nunes, which obviously he's going to love. Um, 
so yeah, it's just a, it's another sort of um, tactical benefit of of this new system, which is taking shape. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, when you mentioned that, then I I did think of the the Newcastle goal actually, and I think it it does offer an insight into potentially if we are going to stick with this kind of new look possession shape, it does probably. It would probably allow Nunes to play as the as the central number nine if if we want him to, because behind him there would be a kind of box midfield really in terms of Trent and Fabinho, and then the two high number eights. So Nunes wouldn't really have to do as much dropping deeper, linking with the play like Fabinho was doing and, and like Gappo was doing lately. Um, and if you think of that, if Nunes was to play as the nine within this system, that would open up. That the left side for Luis Diaz potentially, and I think Gapo, to be honest, in this kind of system, could he even play as the the left side of number eight. Because if he did, and Liverpool are dominating the ball, you're basically playing as a number ten really for most for the most part. Certainly against Leeds, um, it's only in certain situations you have to track back and actually perform as a number eight. Um, but what what what's your stance on this kind of narrative that's emerged that? Potentially, Liverpool don't need an additional midfielder because of this trend thing. I mean, obviously, we still need midfielders regardless. But I've seen yeah. some people saying, like, maybe we can remove the signature of one of them because Trent is now doing it. What's your stance on that? Yeah, I'm not sure about that, to be honest. <laughs> I think that, that that would be, a you know a brave or possibly foolish call to make at, at this point. But I mean, you know, he's still, he's still a right back as much as he's moving into these yeah. areas. He is still playing primarily as right back. And it seems like, oh, well, he could play midfield now, but it seems that way because it was against Leeds and, and Liverpool dominated the, the ball so much. You know, he's not going to be able to do that as much in, in quite a lot of games. Um so yeah, I I wouldn't be sort of abandoning the search for for several midfielders in the in the thought process that you know Trent can take one of the spots or anything like that, even starting from right back. But yeah, it it certainly changes things because obviously you know they're they're, they're sort of playing this three two five system, so it it probably means you could possibly get away with with. Uh, not needing quite so many midfielders, but yeah, I wouldn't be taking that chance myself. No, I think that's that's an important point to make in terms of Trent is, is still a right back in this in this system. He's just yeah. inverting into midfield when Liverpool have possession. Liverpool have not made this a seismic change to now start playing three two five. It's three two five when Liverpool have the ball mm. completely secured, basically. Um whether that will change, I don't know. Whether it'll become three two five on a permanent basis, like with and without the ball, remains to be seen. But right now, Trent is still a right back, and um, I do think it impacts transfer business a little bit, though. In terms of if we're doing this, <clears throat> maybe we do open the door to kind of more offensive number eight. Some of the players we've been linked with, and we're going to touch on one soon. Say, for example, Alexis McAllister. Mason Mount, even Matthias Nunes, who I have probably shown myself to be a little bit less keen on this podcast that we that we sign him. Most of that has stemmed from me being concerned that those players don't really tackle Liverpool's primary issue, which is on the defensive side of the game. Like just for a bit of context on that, I've been checking the numbers lately, and 
it is quite stark because if you look at the goals scored and the goals conceded columns, Liverpool's attack and defence both look about the same level. Whereas if you look at the underlying numbers, you get a bit more of a picture then. So in terms of expected goals per, per match, Liverpool are third in the league. Mm-hmm. Third best attack in the league behind City and Arsenal, which is what many people would probably expect. Yeah. On the defensive side of the game, though, in terms of what we concede, in terms of expected goals, I think that is either joint 12th or joint 13th in the Premier League, which is yeah bad. <laughs> <laughs> and for a bit of context, the teams that were joint with Wolves and Southampton, mm. bottom of the league, and I'm not sure where Wolves are right now, but I know they were bottom of the league around World Cup time. So yeah. it re- it's it's really a massive defensive drop. So I've always lo- I've I've been looking at that for the season, thinking like any midfielders we sign, they have to be kind of like a a many Casado kind of mm-hmm. player who's going to win the ball. If we're playing with this system now, those number eights that Liverpool sign can be these kind of attack-minded De Bruyne, Odegaard type players. So, um, but again, regarding Trent, I mean, if between now and the end of the season he does absolutely dominate like he did against Leeds every single week, then I don't know. We'll see what happens. But right now, it does feel early days, and you do have to put a bit of a bit of something on the fact that Leeds were just horrendous, really, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, like I say, you have to put it, you have to view everything that happened in that context that Leeds weren't very good. I mean, I think. The thing with the transfers, like, I would like to think that the planning for this summer has been going on all season. I mean, it must have done, you would think, with the with the issues Liverpool have clearly had in the in the midfield and stuff like that. And I hope whatever their plan is, because their plans have tended to work in the past, not been flawless, but tended to work. I don't want them to abandon what they've got in mind just because Trent's had a good game at Leeds playing in this sort of inverted role or anything like that. Um because we don't know if it'll, as we said, if it'll sort of be repeatable um, to that extent every week. It, you know, it, it almost certainly won't be. We've seen them move away from from Bellingham, obviously, but they, they will surely will have had other targets lined up. So hopefully they're, they're not going to sort of throw away whatever plan they had just on the basis of of what we've seen. But it's interesting what you say about it possibly changes the profile of, of midfielder. They might need a bit more. I mean, those defensive numbers you mentioned, I mean, I think Liverpool are third bottom for, for big chances conceded. And that's the real the real problem. I was looking at Alisson's figures yesterday or earlier this week, and um, he's faced the highest quality chance of any goalkeeper in Europe's big five leagues. Um, you know, Liverpool don't concede a ton of shots, but they tend to be of high quality chances. And, and he's faced, the, as I say, the, the highest quality chance. So the fact he's the biggest overperforming goalkeeper just makes his performance even more remarkable, really. I mean, he's saved about 11 goals more than expected, I think, last time I checked. And yeah, I think um, Jan Oblak did something similar maybe about three or four years ago, but otherwise it's the, the highest performance by any goalkeeper in the big leagues in the last few years. And he's doing that from these, you know, these really great chances that Liverpool are, are offering up. So... It will be interesting to see like, if Trent and Fabinho form a sort of midfield duo, as we say, you know, Trent starting at right back, but as a sort of duo, and if that'll offer better protection, because obviously any debate about Trent invariably comes back to his defending and, uh, you know, the, the issues he has there. So is, 
are they going to be exploited if he's sort of playing in a midfield role or will it be easier for him? I mean, I guess we'll have to wait and see when they play against, you know, a better team from Leeds, as we keep saying. And, you know, we, we probably won't get that answer this weekend either. But, um, yeah, it's interesting to see if um, if they do go in that direction. Um, obviously, Klopp in the past as well has, has sort of got on record saying he doesn't like a back three. So, I mean, obviously, this isn't a back three in the in the traditional sense, but it, it, it might mean that they don't permanently switch to an actual starting formation of sort of 3-2-5, 3-2-4-1, something like that. Um, yeah. I guess it's just a really interesting time because there's a lot of questions, a lot of things up in the air with Liverpool's midfield. And, and this is, has thrown another thing into the mix, albeit this is a positive thing into the mix when obviously a lot of the debate has been negative for the last year and, and rightly so. So, um, yeah. Lots of question marks, but um, main thing, as I say, I hope they don't sort of rip up their plans based purely on on what we've seen. But it, it, it should offer a new dimension, which is really interesting. Yeah, well, as I said, I mean, some of the players Liverpool have been linked with already on the back of this tactical shift now look better suited. I mean, I did, I've done a, I'm going to do a, a um, what's it called, like a, a video with Redmen TV this week. It's coming out tonight, actually, it's Friday night on on how it impacts Liverpool's transfer business. Because uh, I do think it, it it has quite an impact, but it has an impact in terms of suddenly a lot of the targets we've been linked with now look better suited to me, because a lot of the players we've been linked with are quite offensive-minded number eights, and I've been a little bit concerned that like Klopp, Linda's obsessed with this attack and football, you still need to do the opposite end, essentially, and you still need those kind of piano carriers really and uh, I don't think Liverpool particularly have those but you've just been such an analyst and uh, we might as well use this as an excuse to actually do the proper numbers I've just checked Europe <clears throat> so across Europe's top five leagues this season Alisson has saved about 11.6 goals more than expected which is top of the whole of Europe Um, it's not even close either really the next best is an overperformance of 8.2 goals that is Frederick Ronno, who is Danish and plays in goal for Union Berlin. Then Bernd Leno, fully enough, for Fulham on an overperformance of 7.1 goals. And then Jevan Duf, who plays in goal for Reims in uh, League One. Then Mark and Ter Stegen for Barcelona. So Alisson is, is out on his own in terms of Liverpool's, in terms of like shot stopping and things like that. But that's that's kind of disguised the Liverpool's defensive game in a in a in a bit of a way really, and that's why look at the expected goals numbers. Liverpool do have to get better defensively, but I thought it was interesting that when Klopp was asked after the game against Leeds by by I think it was Carragher, um, he he asked why why have you made this change? Is it to get sense on the ball more, or is it is it to be better defensively? And Klopp kind of said both really, but I do think a lot of it does stem from this. Elements of control that we've been lacking. I think one one thing you might have pointed out was at no point really in the whole game was anybody really engaging in a one v one defensive situation. He was constantly like Liverpool players doubling up in certain situations. The counter pressure was good. I'm sure you've seen the uh, the meme of Klopp kind of. Uh, you've seen it. Yeah, he's got, yeah. He's laughing or whatever because it was so good. Basically, in the ninety second minute or whatever it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think any any system that that provides us a bit of platform like that to press and, and regain the ball as quickly as we did, you know, it bodes well, really. Um, 
But yeah, I do want to touch on Liverpool's finishing. You touched on it earlier as soon as we started the podcast. I do think it's weird. Um, for the season now, Liverpool are still underperforming uh, in terms of expectation, but it's only by about 1.2 goals now. Mm-hmm. But we seem to have gotten we seem to have got a lot of that back in terms of a normal level in about three games, really. Um, like against Leeds, we posted an expected goals of 2.7, which is enough to win any game, really. But we scored six. Yeah. <laughs> and I think against Manchester United, I'll double-check that now. But... I, mean, similar, look, I think it was about 3xG or something like that in that game, yeah. 2.8 it was, and we scored right. seven. And against Bournemouth, we posted 3.3 and scored nine. <laughs> now, I will say, if you're posting 3.3, you, you you can score nine, to be honest, because you're posting a lot there. That's a lot in yeah. terms of expected goals, in terms of ch- shots and chances and things. But it does seem weird how Liverpool seems to work. Once they kind of get rolling, it, it is very much like a snowball, isn't it? Yeah, they're they've they're still very good at, at making the most of these sort of situations. Um, you know, the, the the attack hasn't been too much of a problem all season, at least in terms of of chance creation. Um, as we've been, as you say, there it's it's the finishing, and it's just really strange. Like you know, before they played Leeds, a lot was made of the fact they hadn't scored a goal away from home against the the bottom six sides. And I did something with the numbers earlier this week. You know, you can put the shot values into the sort like a sort of simulator thing, and it says how many goals you should probably score from those chances. Hmm. And basically, it came out as a zero percent chance they wouldn't have scored in any of those games, and yet that's exactly what happened. <laughs> I guess most notably, you've got Salah missing a penalty at, at Bournemouth is probably the the obvious example. But again, looking ahead to, to this weekend in a way, like Nottingham Forest, they had four clear-cut chances there, didn't take any of them. Four at Bournemouth, didn't take any of them. And when you look at the shooting figures, I mean, obviously, um, Nunes is the biggest underperformer, which I don't think will surprise anybody. He scored 2.2 goals fewer than expected, at least according to FB Ref, anyway. And I think a lot of people would expect that. You know, he has missed some big chances when clean through and stuff like that. That, that isn't that much of a surprise. But behind him, you've got three players who are all under by at least a goal, and it's Robertson, Canate, and Henderson. I mean, these are guys who barely even have any shots. You know, Robertson's had yeah. 13, Canate 7, Henderson 17. And between them, they're basically three and a half goals below expected. I mean, I can remember Robertson having some half-decent chances. I can't even remember picture any for the for the other two, particularly. I mean, Canate will obviously be from set plays, I guess. And, um, yeah, I'm not sure about Henderson, but... Um, you know, you even go further down. I mean, Jota and Salah, 0.8 below expectation. They're not hugely underperforming, but if everybody more or less is underperforming, then you've then you've got an issue. And um, it's only, I think, Firmino is the, is massively overachieving, four goals more than expected. Diaz and yeah. Gakpo, 1.3 above. But basically, if you take any sort of level of under or overperformance in the league this season, Liverpool have got six players who are over and somewhere probably around 15, 16 who are under. And that's, you just can't balance like that. And that's why they've, they've ended up in the, the position they are. You know, I think we said maybe it was last week, but a lot of those games against the poorer teams, they haven't played great. You know, no one's claiming that they are, but they have had the chances to get things from those games and, and they often didn't. And, uh, it, you know, it doesn't mean that everything's automatically going to be fine next season. It doesn't, you know, 
like to talk about regression to the mean and stuff like that. You know, they're not automatically all going to get back on track, you know, next season. They may have overperformed in the past and stuff like that. They probably have, you know, these things come and go in waves. But um, yeah, it's just another thing that that's hampered them and, and made their results worse than they perhaps should have been. Yeah, and that's been a curious one. You've, you've just mentioned the uh, the midfield goal scorer there, and actually, I thought it was interesting recently. I think it might have been Robbie Fowler's column or something like that, but mm-hmm. he pointed out that in terms of the Premier League this season, Liverpool don't actually have a single centre mid with more than one goal mm-hmm. uh, in the se- in in the season in the Premier League. Now I don't, I'm not sure how much that matters in 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 your eyes. I think it's a, it is a bit more of an age old Premier League thing that you need a centre mid who gets your ten goals like a Gerrard or a Lampard, Vieira, Yaya Torre. It is a very, it is, does feel very Premier League. Yeah. But Harvey Elliott's got one. Stefan Bassett has got one. Ox has got one. Henderson none. Thiago none. Um, Milner none. Curtis Jones none. Naby Keita none. Um, so I think. As I said, I don't really know how much it matters. And I think if we were to get someone like a Bellingham, obviously that would probably get addressed because I think he is good alive and late. But in yeah. terms of the summer, again, going forward to this Liverpool rebuild, it will be interesting to see how much Klopp adds in the engine room in terms of an attack and threat, even if it's just one player who can do the box-to-box stuff and arrive and late and stuff. But um, I'm not sure if you've got any thoughts on that one, whether it even matters. You know, Liverpool, when we won the league, Henderson, Wijnaldum, Fabinho, that did feel very defensive if you want, but then Wijnaldum could also pop up with these valuable goals when you need them to. Yeah, I think it is a bit of an old-school idea, like you say there. I think it's one of those things, it, it probably feels important if you're a team that plays with one or two strikers, but Liverpool normally play with three. You know, when you've got yeah. Firmino, Mane and Salah, at the top of their game for a few years, it probably doesn't really matter if uh, if your midfielders score that many goals or not. I think as well, it sort of gets overlooked. I mean, um, you know, most people probably think that Oxlade-Chamberlain hasn't been that great since he got injured in 2017-18, but he was actually the team's fourth top scorer behind the front three in 2019-20 when they won the league. I think he got eight in all competitions, something like that, which is not like a huge amount, but as the next best behind the the established front three, it, you know, it's not a bad effort. And also that season yeah. we saw goals from, um, well, the, the players you mentioned. I mean, obviously Fabinho uh, famously scored in the, the Man City game, the 3-1, that was a hugely important game. Um, and obviously Henderson got an assist in that game as well. Because it's not just goals as well, it's assists. I mean, obviously we don't see that many assists generally from the Liverpool midfield. I mean, I think against Leeds, obviously um, Curtis Jones, uh, did a great pass for for Jota. You know, I think someone like him can probably add a you know a few goals and assists. Whether he's going to play enough to to add more than that, you know, perhaps not. But um, yeah, I don't think it's something they need to be too concerned about when they're going to be playing three forwards and stuff like that. But um, I guess it's like everything. If you can add that as well, then then happy days. But uh, I don't think an out and out goal scoring midfielder is something they need to be focusing upon. As we've said, it's the sort of Going the other way has been far the bigger issue. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, well, that kind of brings us on to, I suppose, our next talking point, and that is Liverpool do seem to have stronger than usual transfer links with uh, a certain Ryan Gravenberg, who plays for Bayern Munich, uh, moved to Germany last summer from Ajax for. 
relatively cheap fee actually i think it was around 20 million at the time um hasn't really played too much this season been much of a bench option certainly under nagelsman i don't know what two good things of him particularly just yet but the, the way it is that liverpool are, are talking to his camp and liverpool are interested and i've seen some people say the deal's even been done and all this stuff so i don't know how much you know about some bees how many times have you produce content around this man probably about 40 pieces in the past two weeks <laughs> yeah not quite that many but um yeah it's not the first time he's been linked either because when the new one came up i always sort of search back i think i've written about him before and i think it was december yeah. 2021 something like that um there was links then and obviously they've come up again i mean i think it's easy to see why he's being linked i mean you, you only have to look at the top of his fb ref page and see the players he's similar to and it's um bellingham's in his top 10 Top guy is Alexis McAllister. Conor Gallagher, number two, he's been linked with Liverpool. Kefran Turam, number three, I think he's been linked with Liverpool this week. All right, most midfielders are getting linked with Liverpool in, in some way or another, but yeah. he's another guy who's sort of falling into that pattern of players that Liverpool do appear to be to be looking at and interested in and stuff like this. And yeah, it's interesting, the Bayern move obviously doesn't seem to have worked out for him. I, I did see he's only made one league start and he got substituted at halftime in that game. So as you mentioned, yeah. whether Tuchel will be more um, sort of more inclined to use him, uh, it doesn't seem to have been yet. Um, I guess he'll probably review the squad in the summer and stuff like that, whether Grumberts will still be there or whatever. But yeah, he, well, obviously... He, sorry, no, carry go on. on. Go on. Well, no, I was only going to say that the, the thing that caught my eye that sort of most interests me about him... Um, was in a review of the Eredivisie last season, the Opta end of season review and stuff like that. Yeah. And he wasn't in the team of the season, um, but they had some stats on attacking sequence involvements. So whether a player is taking a shot, um, assisting a shot or being involved in a possession sequence that leads to a shot. And uh, Gravenberch had an, an average of 7.3 per 90 minutes, which was the fourth most. And he was actually ahead of Cody Gakpo for this. And this is Gakpo when he scored, I think, 12 goals and got 12 assists or something like that. And obviously, Gravenberch isn't, isn't posting numbers, anything like that. But he's actually involved in, in build-up play um, more than Gakpo. And I think he was the top player as well for um, the sort of pre-assist stat, which is the, the pass to the person who creates the goal. Yeah. Um, and stuff like that so yeah so he's 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 ranking well in those sort of um in those sort of metrics so um you know maybe not somebody to add the goals and assists from midfield as we've as we've just been talking about but definitely somebody who can be involved in the sort of stage prior to that yeah he's he's an interesting target actually i think i'll be honest when i when we first got linked with him i was a bit unsure simply because of this going back to this issue liverpool have it for me all season i've been saying it on this podcast it is a defensive issue we need to be better at extinguishing fires and keeping control of the ball and initiating these waves after waves of attack by sweeping up loose balls and things like that and i looked at gravenberg and thought he's a good player obviously does he address that concern i don't know but despite that he is obviously a massive talent. He's Ajax's youngest ever player for the start. So he's very physically mature for his age, about six foot two, six foot three. Still only 20 years old. As I said, he, he was presented with his debut before, like 
Marco van Basten, Johan Cruyff, Frank Rijkaard, you know, all these absolute, Dennis Bergkamp, all these absolute Ajax legends, Matthias de Ligt. Gravenberg was, is the youngest ever player of that club, which is definitely saying something. Um, as a result of coming out of the Ajax Academy, he's very, very technical. He's, um, he's kind of a joy to watch when he's in full flight. He reminds me a little bit of... Um, Kind of like an essay for Crystal Palace almost when he's when he's gliding with the ball and when he's carrying it. He likes to he's a keen ball carrier and Curtis Jones is a little bit like that too. Um but yeah, he's a he's an obvious talent and I think that's 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 the big thing for me. I think regardless of what what he addresses, I think the fact of the matter is he's so young at the minute and his his education obviously in terms of football's been really good and he's got that kind of base to be world-class. He, he's got that world-class potential. And if you put that under the wing of, of Jürgen Klopp, who's obviously proved to be a master of getting the most out of rough diamonds, mm. he th- th- those two could be kind of a match made in heaven, really. Um, and I think, obviously, moving towards this potential 3-2-5 shape, Again, I think it. I think it benefits him. It, it, it's influenced my perspective a little bit on whether he's a suitable target or not. Because in that system, the number eights form part of the attacking bank of five rather than conducting um, defensive duties, covering fullbacks, and engaging in build-up play in, in deeper areas and, and things like that. So, I think I actually gradually played more of a final third role for them. I think he gradually started to play a bit more advanced. Um, and again, previously, I would have thought that's a problem. Why are we getting another player like this? But now I can see the logic behind it if we're going to keep this kind of system. But overall, I mean, roundabout way of saying it, overall, I'm I'm not I'm not against it or anything like that. I'd, I'd be curious to see the price, though. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think as well, what we've got to remember, we, we always... You know, we speculate about these players and where they might play and stuff like this. But then, you know, Klopp's got a bit of form for taking players, particularly Dutch players, for some reason, and, and sort of changing the way they play and stuff like that. Obviously, Wijnaldum, more of an attacking midfielder, then becomes a, a bit more sort of defensively minded. Gakpo's a left winger who now seems to be being used in a sort of false nine role more often than not. So we could talk about what Gravenberch sort of currently does uh, and what he did for Ajax and stuff like that. But obviously, Klopp might have something different in mind as well. But I agree what you say about, you know, he looks great in uh, in full flow. I mean, if you watch any of his highlight videos, what you'll see time and again, you know, receiving the ball with his back to goal, sort of around the centre circle and something like that, and spinning his marker and just heading yeah. off towards goal and stuff like that. He seems to be excellent at that. Obviously, a lot of those clips are the, the in Dutch football. You have to sort of take that with a pinch of salt. I guess it's not going to be as easy in, in England and things like that. But yeah, that, that seems to be, at least from what I've seen, his sort of primary skill is get the ball and just get it upfield and sort of lay it off to, to whoever it might be. So um, kind of probably what Liverpool wanted from, from Naby Keita, but have never really got on a consistent basis. Um, obviously, because of his fitness issues, he's, you know, he's often done it when he's played. But to get somebody who can do that sort of thing, and um, I think it was, whether it was on here or something else I've done, talking about, you know, the sort of physical presence in, in Liverpool's midfield. And they've got some short guys, Elliot and Carvalho, although obviously he may be leaving. There's rooms about that. But obviously, yeah, another, you know, another sort of um, decent unit of a guy in there would, would be no bad thing either. So, um, yeah, he, he yeah. definitely ticks a lot of boxes. As you say, the price is an interesting one because 
he's going to have a long while left on his contract and that Liverpool haven't tended to go for players in that situation. But clearly, he's, he doesn't seem to have, have fitted in in Munich. And if, if Tuchel wants to do a rebuild, then he's a saleable asset. So they may be able to sort of strike up a, a fair deal. So, yeah, it will be, um, it will be worth keeping an eye on the price. You know, I don't think Liverpool should be going all out, sort of Bellingham money or anything like that for him. But, uh, yeah, I think he'd be a good signing if they can get him. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, to be honest, if I hadn't seen the reports, <clears throat> I'd have suggested this one's a complete no-goer. Um, even though he hasn't really played this season. As you say, one start and I think 17 appearances from the bench in the Bundesliga. Uh, he, he's, he's Even despite his age, he, he's on about 180, 170 grand a week. Wow. Um, and his contract is up until 2027. So right. that's that's a big contract. Um, so for, for for them to be sold, you would have thought Liverpool would have to pay that, buy out his contract to get. I'm not, not going to do the maths on the spot, but that <laughs> feels like the kind of thing where you just kind of look at that and think, no, he's not going to move. The only way in which I can see it being a possibility, maybe I think buying keep talking about this striker void. They keep obsessing over this fact that they haven't got a striker since they've lost Lewandowski. I've seen them linked with like. Victor Osman of, of of Napoli and Harry Kane even at Spurs, maybe if they want to fund a bigger move like that to sh- shape shift the squad a little bit, you know, sacrifice a centre mid for a striker or something. Mm-hmm. I know Thomas Tuchel's a big fan of strikers, considering he really pushed to get Lukaku to Chelsea a few years back. Um, so potentially there's there's something in that, but yeah, he's a player as you say in terms of physicality, he's definitely got that on his side, and I think that. I think if you look at him, you you could possibly suggest he he has the makeup to be a six, um, but then you have to factor in he, he is quite attack minded, very technical, likes to carry the ball over large spaces, so that then goes against him playing as a six, I suppose. But again, if you look at this kind of new system Liverpool have got, I can't see him as a as part of the two next to Trent potentially when we need him. But I can specifically see him further up as one of the two advanced eights. This week, I um, <clears throat> sent a message to... I, I, I speak to a lad who, who's a video scout in the Eredivisie for, for one of the clubs in the Eredivisie every now and then. So I just sent him a message and just basically said, uh, <laughs> should I want this to happen or not? And uh, <clears throat> he just gave me some basics. Like He said that I actually played in two roles in the 4-3-3 as a left-sided centre-mid. Um, early in his career, he, he come deeper to get on the ball, and later in his career, he was pushed between the lines a little bit more. And his words were, he's he's ridiculous on the ball for his age, but also got a lot to learn, especially in moments of transition going both ways. Uh, so make what you want from that, I suppose. But he's he looks like a big talent, is what I'm getting at anyway. And I think that's that's kind of the bare minimum what you need a bit like Nunes in, in many ways Nunes has still got lots to work on lots to learn and stuff like that but if you look at the base of what he's got and Canati was similar the base of what these players have got spe- specifically physically you know they're all they're all massive they're all very mobile very fast um, things like that very intense characters and stuff so I think Gravenberg has enough kind of natural qualities and and strengths that are already there for him to become something really special. 
but how quickly he would get to that, I don't know. Um, and as I said, how much he'd cost, I don't know, considering those contract details. Yeah, I didn't realise he was on that much money. I mean, that's got to be a salary commitment of like over 30 million or something like that, which is um, obviously a lot to pay for somebody who might just be not quite one for the future, but obviously one who you've got to sort of help develop and stuff like that. But it is interesting, all these sort of players they're being linked with, like you say, guys like, or have bought, you know, these sort of younger guys, perhaps when they were buying previously. I feel like, you know, they're Mane and Salah and guys like that, maybe 24, 25, and now they're shifting to sort of 22, 23 um, players like that. But um, do you think, obviously you said about him, you know, possible issues in transition. I mean, do you think he, he could work in a Liverpool midfield then? I mean, you mentioned as the, you know, alongside Trent and stuff like that. I mean, I've not seen enough of him myself, but obviously I guess that's, you know, a bit of concern if a, if, if a scout's saying that about him. Well, one of the questions I asked him was, is, is he a, I mean, he's obviously not, but I, I asked him, is he a passenger on the defensive side? Like, is he the kind of player that you've maybe got to carry or is he a bit more of a, you know, he'll either get, regain the ball a lot for you. And he said, I'd say he contributed well at VC level and in the Champions League, but the sample size is a little bit smaller. He's not a passenger, but he's also not super active, is what he said. So, yeah, I think to be honest, if I was to paint a picture of him, I think he's, I don't think he's that different to Curtis Jones. I think he's just a lot, he's got a much higher ceiling, mm-hmm. but he's similar in the sense that he's about as good on the defensive side of the game. Really likes to carry the ball, likes to dribble, a bit expressive and stuff like that. Will be comfortable, more comfortable higher up in the midfield than in deeper areas, but he could probably do both. Uh, close control and all that stuff. But I think in comparison to Jones, I think he's probably capable as a six or could be capable as a six. He's a lot more physically built. He's two years younger still. And as I said, I think he's got more potential. Um, But in terms of player types, like stylistically, I don't think he's that different to Jones based on what I've seen. Um, But that's, that's, I mean, some people might take that as a bad thing. I, I think, Curtis Jones has shown, particularly in the past like three weeks, that there's a reason that we're still trying to be really patient with this kid. He's still only 22. He does have a lot to his game. Um, and I think past couple of seasons, I don't think Liverpool's midfield makeup has kind of suited what he's about. But I think this now, past couple of weeks, this this three two five, we keep going on about it, don't we? But I think I do think it suits him because it allows him to play in that attack and bang of five um, and play higher up in the final third. So, uh yeah, it's one to keep an eye on, and um, we certainly need midfielders, so if it's another body, <laughs> I'll take it. I don't know about you. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's going to be so interesting to see how it all kind of unfolds once the first deal is completed for whoever that is, you know, what sort of role we think they're going to do, well, then who do they go after that? Like, if if, if Gravenberch is the, is the first player to be signed, let's say, for the sake of argument, well, as we've said, it doesn't necessarily solve the issues in, in Liverpool's midfield. So we, who do they go for after that and stuff like that? So it well, will be interesting if they sign him and then he's, you know, not really addressing the issue. You start to think, well, who who else is coming in? Well, how, how would you feel if if it was to come out, like in the coming days or whatever, that Liverpool have basically done Mount and, and Gravenberg? How would you feel about that? Would you feel like we need more? Would you feel... Content right with source of it, you know, what would your perspective on that be? I'd be pleased in the sense I think they're both good players, 
but I'm not sure if it would be addressing the the sort of issues that we've we've talked so often about. Um, but then maybe you know they they would work in this this three two five, and that's what Liverpool are going to do next season, and, and everything looks a bit different. I mean, what what would you think if they were the sort of two signings? I would be happy. Um, I think Mount in particular, I'd be over the moon with, and I think Gravenberg is, as we've touched on, is is more than worth. A punt. I mean, I'm not sure how much he's going to cost, but this is the same player that was at Ajax last season. I think he's got absolutely bags of potential. Could be an absolute world beater if he maximises his potential and things like that. But I do think they will be part of me. That's a bit like, okay, maybe one more. And I'm not specifically sure. I think it'd have to be someone a bit more established than Gravenberg. Someone who's a bit more been on the scene a bit longer and I still like the idea of a of some kind of ball winner in there. I know that this kind of three two five doesn't necessarily suggest that we need one of those players because obviously you've you've got Trent as a situational six, Fabinho as a six, and Bassetic is a potential six at times. Henderson can play there. Um, I suppose Thiago at times can play there in the two. So there wouldn't be as much of a need for a ball winner, but I do like the idea of getting one in. And I think uh, I think Casado, for example, is a uh, is very well suited to what Liverpool have suffered from this season in terms of extinguishing those fires and giving the likes of Salah and Trent and Diaz, whoever it may be, a platform to just kind of go and win the game in the final third. Mm. Um, but it's just it's going to be interesting to see what Liverpool end up getting anyway. But please, yeah, thanks for joining us, mate. No worries, happy to anytime. Hopefully. Um... I guess we might have two games to talk about next week because I think is it West Ham on Wednesday next week? I think something like that. So uh, I don't even know that. I'll double check that now. <laughs> it's definitely. I'm pretty sure they're playing midweek against West yeah. Ham and obviously Nottingham Forest on Saturday. So I guess we might have a couple of games to talk about next week. Yeah, well, hopefully we pick up two wins. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we if we do, the next conversation we have will probably revolve around whether Liverpool can get fourth or not. That was on the agenda a little bit today, actually, but I just thought it's a bit too early. It's one win. Let's not get carried away. Yeah. But, yeah, hopefully Liverpool can pick up two wins and hopefully we can turn this 6-1 win over Leeds into an element of form. Uh, but, yeah, thanks for tuning in and uh, we will see you next week. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.